0: COVID-19 shot
1: as soon as you're eligible to protect yourself, your family, and your community. I urge you to visit vaccines.gov to find a location where you can easily
2: get an updated vaccine. And please do it as soon as possible. Thank you. Well, there was Lord, I mean, uh, Dr. Fauci. Uh, with his parting shot as he retires, um, and I guess it's if all of you, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a vaccine. Talk about a mixed metaphor. Well, to help us sort out the whole vaccine uh, conundrum, um, is a, a former FDA official, current Georgetown University health law professor, and former Republican uh, uh, opponent for Cory Booker in the Senate uh, race. There, Rick Mada, our good friend. How you doing, Rick? Thank you for uh, for being with me on this Thanksgiving evening. <clears>
0: Thank <throat> Hey, good evening, Randy. It's great to be back on with you.
2: Man, we have so much to talk about because when we asked you to come on, it was about uh, some news out of Australia, which really is at odds with uh, the experts there, at odds with what uh, Dr. Fauci said. Uh, And I want to really unpack that and try to understand where he's coming from. Uh, And and now on top of that, HHS wants us to go back to masks. So we have a lot to talk about. So Australian health experts are saying really based on the data out of Singapore, you know, a couple of shots and maybe an extra booster are as good as 3 or 4 or 5 it just seems like you there is a law of diminishing returns with more boosters that's what i think the data is showing as far as severe d- disease and death goes so why is fauci saying what fauci is saying
0: well, you know, no one really knows why Fauci says what he says. Who knows? Maybe there's some Black Friday special on vaccines we don't know about. <laughs> but you know, to be honest with you, you know, this this Australian recommendation not to get the fifth dose or the third booster, coming based off of Singapore data that said it's very rare for people uh, who had two doses to have hospitalizations or se- severe infections. Uh, you know, this is quite a turn in health policy, a quite a change in health policy from what Australia is otherwise a very pro-vaccination country. You know, Australia was the first to mandate uh, the HPV vaccine to, to stamp out cervical cancer. Uh, so even well before COVID, they've been a very vaccine-happy continent country, whatever you want to call Australia. Uh, and so for the ACIP uh, equivalent in Australia, their health authorities to shift their health policy positions, very interesting to say that they've looked at the benefit risk of the product and uh, are now recommending against the booster uh, based on a Lack of evidence on its conferred
2: benefit. Yeah, and, and you know, they, they always say uh, the best advocate is a former skeptic. Well, I think in this case, it really, it's the, a former advocate that is a skeptic should be very informative, right? I mean, I think that's something we need to look at very carefully in terms of our enthusiasm for vaccines. Uh, you know, I I am excited for people that maybe were hesitant for, to ever get a booster, and now that we're several variants down the road, and especially if they have uh, some kind of uh, higher risk for the disease, to, to consider getting the Omicron booster, you know, because it is it, this can be a serious disease and people do die from it. So I don't know where you stand on it. Currently, I'm not an absolutist, yay or nay. I think it needs to be individualized. Uh, and I think the government should probably be beating that drum rather than a one size fits all. It, where do you stand on the whole vaccination uh, Um, vexation at this point.
0: Yeah, well, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, this has to be, you know, as a healthcare professional, an individual approach. You know, the mandates that were originally implemented uh, were to try to confer some common good, right, some public good. If you get everyone vaccinated, reach a certain percentage, you're going to achieve herd immunity. That was the original thinking, and that's more than a year and a half old now, right? We know well past that with COVID is probably one of the fastest mutating viruses we've seen. Uh, And and in fact, now this is uh, interesting, right? I mean, I think it's important to note where the devil really is in the details, and Dr. Fauci seems to skip past this, more, less than 20% of the uh, COVID cases we see now are in the B A five and the B A four subvariant of Omicron. And that's important because that's the exact bivalent vaccine that Dr. Fauci is talking <laughs> about pushing and for people to get, right? And more than 60% of the cases we see right now are in BQ1 and yep. XBB. Now, it start, sounds like some kind of Star Wars. Uh, it does, right? it does. But BQ1 and XBB, right? There is no vaccine that has coverage. So you have what we call this phenomenon called immune escape, right? Where the host is unable to, the, meaning the human is not able to uh, react to the particular viral strain and there's no particular uh, vaccine that has coverage, right? So the creating these vaccine strains, we're not able to keep up with the mutating strains of the virus. So what do you need instead? You need medical intervention, you know, for those that uh, develop the the COVID infection and are heading towards needing hospitalization. We have medical interventions now, whether it's some kind of uh, drug or protease inhibitor or monoclonal or whatever the case is, we're seeing a significantly less number of hospitalizations and severe uh, infections where the vaccines are not necessarily going to cover uh, the current strains that are floating out there. Now, I'm not saying don't get vaccinated. In fact, there's certain subpopulations, immunocompromised and others that may or may not benefit from it. But the point is, and and to your point, I think well said, talk to your doctor. Make it an individual approach. You may need it. You may not. But to have this force top-down where it sounds like Dr. Fauci is some kind of marketing arm for the vaccine makers, that to me really makes no sense in the current landscape of COVID.
2: There was some news out, and by the way, I I should have mentioned you, along with all your other, the hats you can wear and your skill set is a pharmacist. So, I mean, obviously, you've got a uh, a lot of credit here in terms of your wisdom. You bring to the table. I was excited to see that Novavax on a more traditional platform for those who maybe it's appropriate to get the vaccine or maybe never did and would like to have at least some thing as we go into what's liable to be a really vicious uh, uh, influenza season as well. Um You know, uh, they they came out with some news the other day. It's 90 percent effective, uh, you know, uh, compared to the others, 90, 95 percent. Now, was this tested against the older ones or is this old data? Because I I have a feeling this is not, uh, to your point, uh, effective against the newer vaccines, although it does. It does uh, target not just the spike protein, but others, I understand.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure about the, COVID, the Novavax uh, products, but I do know that the current bivalent products at the mRNA, those are really meant to cover around the BA5 and the BA4. Um, and, and and that's what I mean is the importance of that is that, you know, in terms of the amount that's circulating, and these are uh, data CDC put out uh, just of last week, or uh, actually just a few days ago, where they said the cases are really down to about 20% yeah. of that. And uh, even WHO has put out some statements saying that the X- BB and BQ1 are trending as the dominant strain. And, and again, I think the good news is, you know, while I think we may see a surge, especially as you mentioned, with influenza uh, viruses, and of course, there are certain populations as elderly and others that may be immunocompromised should really consider taking it or talking to their doctor about becoming vaccinated from a general population perspective, you know, or from a medical innovation perspective. We should really be looking at how we're going to create more medical interventions beyond just vaccines. Right, right. If we have a conversation just dictated by one uh, intervention, just one vaccination, you know, one side it's all had, well, we know that doesn't work, right? And if we truly want to move past this, then we got to be a little bit more robust in our conversations.
2: There's a lot of talk about the mRNA vaccines, uh, Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, and myocarditis, and uh, now it's come out that they are doing long-term studies to see, uh, you know, both in terms of long-term COVID and uh, the effects of those who did get myocarditis uh, after a vaccination. Um, I, you know, I, I still believe that, uh, again, for the right Person that is in that slot of sixteen to 24, 25, uh, especially young males who appear to be at more risk for myocarditis from the vaccine than others, uh, there could be still some people that might benefit from it. And uh, and I, I I shudder to think that we're, a lot of people that could benefit are being um, shooed away. You know by uh, you know by this kind of data. Do you think that this is? I mean, you were involved in consumer safety uh, at the FDA. That was your your bag, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So do you think that um, this data is going to really incriminate um, what a lot of folks suspected that maybe as they dig deeper, that maybe there was a rush to emergency approval that should have been better thought? Any, any, Any predictions along that line? Well, I think, you
0: know, there's a fine balance here, right? At the time, we had a, you know, public, true public health emergency with the original COVID cases. We had no idea what was going on. Uh, And so there was a rush to produce vaccines and a rush to get them out. Uh, And there was a lack of uh, long-term safety studies. Uh, However, at the same time, there was less interest in medical interventions. And so I think a lot of people developed some uh, skepticism around the entire process. Uh, You know, what was the integrity of the approval? process to rush products that were unapproved out to the American public. Uh, And so, you know, there's some, uh, in my opinion, justification around that at the time with the original strains to say, well, we should, you know, get this out. When we knew we weren't going to achieve herd immunity, that's when we should have allowed for that decision-making to happen at the individual level, uh, especially given the data that's come out that the tests, the products were not tested to stop transmissibility of the virus. They were simply uh, able to boost, you know, your own immune system around it and you know when there was no more public good meaning the inability to achieve herd immunity we should have stopped the conversations around mandates uh you know at the time and allowed for a natural transition of people to be vaccinated but then when we started to talk about the boosters right uh and starting to continue this emergency use authorization this continuation of the public health emergency uh and and we've i mean literally been in a public health emergency in perpetuity here that's when i think people started to say you know what how can you be in an emergent situation for more than two years, the hospitals are not overrun, you're not having severe infections, you have medical interventions to deal with the threat of what used to be a very serious uh, disease. I think that's when people started to uh, pull away from the narrative that's being pushed and that actually translates objectively to the current, what we call utilization rates, where now with the bivalent booster, less than 10% of the population have taken it. So, if the true public health goals were to get more people to be vaccinated, uh, then they should have allowed for more independent thinking, informed consent, and the ability to discuss the benefit and risk. Uh, now you're seeing uh, cases with myocarditis, albeit low, uh, But and there will always be with any product, there's always a benefit-risk profile, right? And there will always be certain risks associated with that, not allowing for people to have the full picture of the product, not allowing for people to have that conversation without forcing a mandate on them. I think that's what really... Yeah eroded the integrity in our public health system.
2: And I think we should remind listeners, Rick, that at least the last good study I saw, and it says on this Thanksgiving Eve that anyone who was vaccinated in the good old days and then got COVID more recently uh, in the last year or so. Probably that's the sweet spot, right? I mean, that seems to put people in pretty good stead. I'm talking for the average individual here, right? I'm not talking about special subpopulations. That's a pretty good combo, right? It seems that the data says that that's, that's a good place to be, right or wrong?
0: That's right. Yeah, I think that's the sweet spot. You know, you want to make sure that the old variants, the original variants, alpha, beta, delta. Remember, delta was pretty bad at that time. But you know, the good thing is we're trending towards that. We're seeing more and more people, uh, you know, get infected, and I arguably say that everyone's probably been exposed to it at some yeah. point now in their life, uh, and walk out of it, you yeah, know, without hospitalization right, right. or developing severe infection. So that's a good place to be. Yeah,
2: one way or another, herd immunity is a great thing and you can achieve it either through a highly effective vaccine. I'm thinking smallpox, um, polio, or you do it through mitigating the severity of the natural course of the disease. And just, you've been talking to that. And that's, I think that's right on. That's I think where we're headed with COVID. This is a very chameleon and changing and rapidly changing virus. We're never going to stomp this out with vaccines. I think they need to move on. Uh, So HHS comes out, um they hire a consultant company to do a re- study and they come out saying we need to reconsider mask mandates now <laughs> I, uh, I don't know i and I, I just i have to i have to almost laugh at this are they kidding even if they make mandates there's going to be there's going to be rebellion in the country at least in a lot of quarters this is crazy huh
0: i'd like to know how much they spent this consulting group to come back with this uh report i mean you know and i got to tell you you know the reinstating mask Mandates, we cannot continue to be a single public health issue country. I said it in 2020, said it in 2021, and doubling down on that in 2022. Uh, we have to look at what the long term impact the mask mandates would have uh, also on the developmental uh, programs with our children in schools. Uh, you can't turn teachers into public health police to enforce this. And I can tell you, having uh, three, you know, uh, snot filled kids in the public school systems, uh, as I do ages nine, seven and five, there's no enforcing this uh, to make it meaningful, notwithstanding that many of the masks that were worn uh, didn't really stop the, uh, you know, the, the virus either. So uh, now I haven't read this report, but I do think that, you know, this is a great theoretical report. Uh, I would say in practice, this country is way past that.
2: Yeah, you're right. And, and you know, I just I think that they again, this not only has the effect of, of um, antagonizing people. um creating anxiety, but it also further erodes public trust. Right, because people just realize that the masks were useless before. Why are we going to do this again? That said, you know, I have told patients that have to travel and go to an air on an airplane an unexpected trip. They have to go. Someone's gravely ill, and they have COPD and uh, congestive heart failure, chronic. You know, they, and I say, look, if you want to really protect yourself, throw away the cloth cloth mask, get a well fitted N95. That's probably the best thing you can do. I mean, it's not. It again, it's not. A one size fits all. There are special situations when people are more vulnerable, and a mask may actually help. So you know, we—it's just this—it's this overarching. I know what's good for you. I'm from the government. It's just not helpful at all. And and Rick, you know, this whole concept of immune debt that we built up as it relates to influenza over the last two socially isolated seasons—I'm um, afraid we're going to be paying that back. We're already seeing that sweeping the country, aren't we?
0: Well, I, I agree with you, and and that's the general issue, right? It's the mandates that creates the one size fits all. Are there going to be subpopulations or people that could benefit, or or heck, if you want to wear it, wear it. But to force everyone to wear it, uh, you know, what is the conferred benefit that you're truly going to achieve? And you know, again, when you look at the, you know, the, the negative implications of masks, which we don't have full studies on, but there are, you know, disruption to learning, communications, uh, you know, children are going to continue to suffer with this. Now, they're saying that the hospitals are overrun with RSV, another virus, right? That's uh, overrunning, uh, I think, some of the hospitals out in the Midwest right now. Children's March. Yeah yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah. And they're saying, well, you know, children haven't really been exposed because of the isolation lockdowns <laughs> <Right>. and masking. <laughs> Being able to naturally develop an antibody response where, you know, kids go to daycare, they're yeah. exposed to, the, or school, and they're exposed to different viruses. And your body can produce antibodies for the normal uh, population. I mean, actually, that's how vaccines work, right? It uh, introduces a virus component to you to stimulate a higher production of antibodies. So your body's ready to react to that. So, uh, you know, there's arguments on both sides. But again, to create this one-size-fits-all, top-down approach, really, really silly. uh, And I do think our country is past that.
2: Are you planning on inoculating yourself with some turkey and gravy and uh, mashed potatoes? and stuffing tomorrow? <laughs> I sure am. sure am. Some pumpkin pie and uh, uh, you name it. Sounds good. Well, we'll all do that and we'll kill our immune system. So who knows what's going to happen? Hey, Rick, I uh, really appreciate uh, all of the time you've given us this year. And I, I'm very thankful for that and hope that we can just uh, uh, continue the, our periodic visits. You bring a lot of wisdom and, and uh, great insight into our discussions. Thank you so much and have a great Thanksgiving.
0: Thank you, Randy. You as well. Cheers.
2: All right. Same to you. Yeah, Rick's always a great insight into things going on in the pharmaceutical industry and certainly uh, slices to the right like the rest of us uh, on this program when we are talking about these issues. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk to our friend Paul Kurtman who has uh, just announced another big personal um, announcement coming up and uh, we're going to talk to him about crypto and FTX and what is the future of that as well as his take on the midterms later on Virginia Cruda. And if you're a little depressed after those midterms, Dr. Carol Lieberman will join us uh, in the uh, 8 o'clock hour. So, lots coming up on the Tolbert Show. Don't go anywhere.
3: When we volunteer for the children, grinning from ear to ear, singing Christmas time.
2: Welcome back to the program. It's 728. We talk with Paul Kirtman about uh, the crypto meltdown, his take on the midterms and what's going on in his show today. You hear Paul every Saturday on News Talk STL here at uh, noon. Great way to spend the midday on Saturdays. How are you doing, Paul? And happy Thanksgiving to you and yours.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to uh, you, Dr. Tobler, and to Leah also.
3: Oh, thank you.
2: So I understand that uh, the the Kirtman tribe is expanding. You guys are more prolific than B, BFT's Bitcoin Empire. <laughs> yeah, we're uh,
1: we're uh, definitely growing and expanding. We uh, uh we will be expecting child number five in March of next year, and so uh, at that point we'll have five kids, ages seven and under. So we're gonna have a rowdy bunch here for uh, next Thanksgiving. <laughs>
2: Wow, that's something else. That's that's good for you, man. Well, that's great. All the best as your wife uh, traverses and navigates uh, the pregnancy. Hey, uh, everyone's watched this meltdown. Um, and this guy, uh, you know, who is turning out to probably be a fraudster on the on the, on the the order of Bertie Maddow. And I know we had talked previously about how uh, I was very skeptical of Bitcoin and the whole cryptocurrency thing. And a lot of people are but on the other hand, you said, well, it's, you know, it may have some legs. I think you were sort of neutral about it. That was my take. W- where is this whole thing going? And, and do you know people that got hurt in this whole deal?
1: Well, I know people that have owned Bitcoin or owned other cryptocurrencies. And so when this fallout from FTX took place and is continuing to take place, the value of their portfolios came down, you know, if they were, if they had, you know, large sums of, uh, different, t- different types of cryptocurrencies. But, you know, in the end, I don't think Bitcoin's really going to go anywhere. The technology that cryptocurrency runs on is called blockchain technology. And this is a technology uh, that allows for much greater accountability in different types of transactions. There's a number of state governments that are beginning to uh, operate their procurement contracts on blockchain because it's just much more accountable. It becomes much more transparent for the people. Cryptocurrency is just when you decide to store value on the blockchain, when you try, when you decide to put some money onto the blockchain and actually hold it on the blockchain. And I think in the end, the financial system is going to be moving more and more onto blockchain technology. So I don't think cryptocurrency is going anywhere, but I think that what's happening with Sam Bankman Breed and FTX. You know, this guy is a con artist, really. I mean, he took what was already a risky asset from his depositors and then basically loaned it or gave it to himself to run really risky investment strategies inside of his own hedge fund. That's something that some institutions can do, but it's not something that you would expect, you know, a, a crypto exchange to be doing. And then on top of that, he's given like upwards of $60 million to the Democrats, and then another billion dollars has just vanished altogether. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to see huge calls from Congress and from the Senate and even from the White House to begin to start putting government regulations on these crypto exchanges Mm -hmm. and on cryptocurrency in general. That's what I think is going to happen. But I don't really think that we're going to see this technology or crypto coins uh, disappear Mm -hmm. or just fade out.
2: Is there a risk, Paul, that um, in response to this, just as there was a, a very aggressive response to the meltdown and the Great Recession in you know two thousand eight nine, um, that they might overregulate it and take away some of the potential of it. Once it's you know the wild wild west becomes a more tamed and reasonable west, uh, is there is there some risk? I mean Dodd Frank really brought many smaller institutions, regional banks, local banks to their knees because the compliance just went crazy as well as investing uh, people and, and, you know, financial advisors, you know, that better than any. So does our friend, Eric Robert, you know, and, and Bob. Um, I mean, it just, it, I guess there's a risk of sort of poking a hole in the whole potential of it too, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is. I think that we're going to see those regulations come and it's right now, the reason cryptocurrency is so attractive to people because, you know, it's, you just really get to keep a lot of your sovereignty. Um, and one of the ways traditionally and historically people have held on to their freedom is just when they've been able to hold on to the freedom of the value of their money and how they use it. You know, there's a lot of economic freedom there. But I think that we're going to see regulations that come in. It'll probably take away a lot of that. But I think the other concern here is I think we might even begin to see more calls for a central bank digital currency. Yeah. And that's what's really scary because when you have a central bank digital currency and the federal reserve has already put together studies, they've already got some white papers on the feasibility of issuing a central bank digital currency or a CBDC is what they call it. And when you do that, then the government can literally program your money so it can be used for certain things and not other things. I and mean, we just saw, um, uh, Justin Trudeau up in Canada completely freeze all the assets of all these people that were wanting to protest his COVID lockdowns. And so if the government can actually program all of our money that we have to use for commercial transactions, they could even, I, I was listening to a congressman from Ohio give a talk about this in Washington just the other week or just the other month. And he was talking about it's so dangerous that if they want to stimulate the economy, they could say, hey, you have to spend so much of your own money. Otherwise, it will expire. And so I think that one of the fears that we have here is that there could even be a call, a strong call as a result of this to really start moving the ball on that central bank digital currency. And that's what people really need to be on the lookout for.
2: Well, sometime we'll have to spend a, you know, your program and my program combined with a discussion of why in the world are we exchanging tangible or digital, um, you know, entities for, goods and services. Why don't we just go back to a barter economy <laughs> and just do things like they used to do in the patchwork rural economies of uh, of yesteryear? I mean, I, I ju- you're right. Once the government gets its hands on it, they can control it. They can mandate it. They can uh, confiscate it. They can plunder it. And that's what we've seen happen. Well, that's what I think we call the income tax system, isn't it? Hey, on another note, um, what about the midterms? I mean, I think a lot of folks were just major disappointed. We're going to talk with Dr. Carol Lieberman next hour a psychiatrist about what i think is a mass if not a a depression at least some uh, a a dysphoria and a real letdown among uh, you know conservatives uh, libertarians people on the right side of the political spectrum what's your diagnosis of what happened in the midterms how come there wasn't a red wave it was a ripple at best i think one of the
1: main factors in this You know, we have all these Latino voters who are fleeing the Democrat party because of the woke ideology, because of the communism and the socialism that the Democrat party has really begun to cling onto and institutionalize, at least within their own party or their party platform. And of course, this is a demographic the Latino voters. This is a demographic, uh, by and large, who their parents and grandparents fled those systems of society. And so it would make sense that we would think everybody leaving the Democrat party Uh, would want to be leaving because of the same thing. But what we've seen is that's just really not true. In fact, there's a lot of people that don't, they want to leave the Democrat party, but the Republicans haven't really done enough to say, come on over to our side. And so I think that's why in this midterm election, when we were expecting this red wave, we didn't get it. I think that the Republicans need to revisit uh, the way we deliver our message, who our messengers are, and exactly how clear, uh, clearly stated our value proposition is to the voters of our country. I think that we've really failed to do that. We have a lot of social media influencers in the Republican Party. We need to get back to having people that have something real to offer rather than just another share, a hashtag, or a like.
2: Okay, so some more substantive discussion. How uh, how much of a drag or not was the Trump behavioral problem? We all know it. I mean, it's even... Trump supporters acknowledge it's 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 a net negative, his behavior. Um, how much of that and the abortion? Where, where do you put those in terms of your, their weight on the electorate, especially those independent voters who voted for Trump in sixteen and not for Trump in twenty?
1: Well, I tell you what, I don't think they went to the polls to vote on the issue of abortion. Uh, when when we saw polling, when we saw issue based polling, which in many cases is more reliable than candidate-based polling, The issue-based polling, by and large, said people were going to the polls to vote on inflation in the economy. But then when people got there, they didn't vote the way we would think they vote, according to the party. What's what's interesting about the week of the midterm election, Dr. Tobler, is this: just a few days after that election took place, when we expected people to vote down the party line on the issue of of, uh, inflation in the economy, just a couple days later. We got a good inflation report, and it said that inflation had come down below the 8% mark, down to about 7.7. On that day, the S&P 500 skyrocketed and closed up an additional five points. So people voted kind of strange and off-kilter in the ballot box. But then on Thursday, when the inflation number came out, they voted with their pocketbook in a way that you would think – uh, would have correlated to them voting just a couple of days before yeah. in the ballot box, but it didn't. And so that's why I'm saying the Republican Party really needs to get to the bottom of this. People are concerned about the issue, but they, it seems that they just don't trust the Republicans with the issue either.
2: Well, could it be that, I mean, while the Republicans came out with their commitment to America about, a, what, a month, six weeks before the election, a lot of, there was a lot of criticism, uh, including yours truly, that unlike the contract with America from the Newt Gingrich era – there wasn't enough specificity. And you've been a legislator here in Missouri, a leading you know, state legislator. Um, not enough specificity like this is the bill that we will propose. This is you know, mm-hmm. what we will do on day one. And I think uh, maybe that just didn't give people enough to grab onto. I think I, is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, that, that's a big
1: part of it. And there's a lot of merit to what you just said, because we Republicans did say the same thing. We said, hey, we're going to overturn Obamacare. They said, we're going to fund the border wall. And when we had the whole government, we failed to do both of those things. And so even if we come right down to saying, here's exactly what we're going to do, I still think there's going to be a trust problem because Republicans have just failed to deliver yeah. on their promises in the past, even when they've had the whole government. And so all of this is just going to rise and fall on leadership. And so if somebody's been Speaker of the House or the President of the Senate for you know, the last five, 10 years, they probably also should make a big uh, media to do about telling the American people, hey, we're changing our leadership some things just have got to change.
2: And Paul, I know as a as a veteran, a service member, um, you had to be gratified that in that LGBTQ Colorado shooting, the guy that brought him down was a, a decorated Army veteran. Uh, I think he'd had two bronze stars, Rich Ferrio, who, along with his wife, uh, they own a brewery, um, had to make it feel good that the guy ran towards the trouble and took down the threat. Uh, unfortunately, his uh, daughter's boyfriend was uh, was murdered in that uh, in that event. But once again, we show how the brave men and women of our uh, of our services are just to be thanked, and we thank you on this Thanksgiving as well, my friend. All
1: right, hey, thanks, Doctor Tobler. Really appreciate that.
2: Hey, what's on the show today at noon?
1: Well, today we're I'm just having to spend a little time out of town, so we're playing a best of, and so uh, the folks there at News Talk STL help me compile just a. Good segment. So, we're going to play that this afternoon uh, from noon to one. But next week, I'll be back and we're going to play some Babylon B, and then we'll have some other people in there for some interviews. And it's just going to be a a good time, both today and next week.
2: Yeah, and Elon has restored Babylon B on Twitter. So, things are looking up. Hey, Paul, all the best to you and yours, and good luck to uh, your wife as she traverses the pregnancy. And we'll be tuning in this and every Saturday at noon here on News Talk STL. Thank you, my friend. All right, thanks, absolutely. Have a, have a great restful Thanksgiving, okay? Thanks, you too. All right. There he is, Paul Kurtman. And when we come back, Virginia Kruda from the Daily Wire joins us. Uh, we're going to talk with her about uh, some some interesting goings on in the world and the things that she's been writing about. Lots coming up on the Tobler Show here on News STL 1019 941 Be right back.
3: A bull with no clouds in sight. Who walks up to a giant and picks a fight and turns a lion's
0: den into a petting zoo? Who can have church
3: in a fiery furnace? Well, I'll tell you
2: Crazy people. Welcome back to the program. We talk with Virginia Kruda from The Daily Wire. How are you doing, Virginia? Your Thanksgiving weekend going well? Yeah. Yeah, good weekend so far. Good deal. How about you? Hey, uh, I wanted to play a clip for you. For You um, you know, there was a lot of uh, hue and cry about, uh, you know, another MAGA shooter, another hater going after the, the uh, folks in the drag show there in Colorado, the LGBTQ, right. until the news broke and Allison Camerota on CNN was a little aghast and at a loss for words. Listen.
3: Sorry, there was an ad that played over it. Give me a second.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, we had one of those ads. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, it started playing the video and then it cut to an ad, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, welcome to Live Radio. It, it ter- right? Yeah. <laughs> it turned out it turned out, well, it turned out that she was she was a little bit at a loss for words because of course, uh, the attorney in the filing in the response to the uh, charges said that Uh, You know, he he claims to be non-binary. In fact, he's trans. Play that, would you, Leah? Yep.
3: Public defenders say, quote, Anderson Aldrich is non-binary.
2: They use they, them pronouns. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's not anything that we had heard from his background. You know, people have been looking into his background. And uh, I don't know if anybody here, are you guys lawyers? I mean, you know, I don't know if, I I don't know what to say about that. I mean, (laughs) that's what he's now saying. So, but first of all, uh, she misgendered because she called him a him, Virginia, mm-hmm. and it really took away the narrative that uh, whenever it's a shooting like this, they're always quick to rush to a judgment that it's a it's an ultra MAGA uh, accomplice or uh, uh, perpetrator. What are your thoughts about this, and when are they ever going to get wise to the fact that they should probably hold judgment until the facts are known? Well,
3: I think that your point stands. I, no, I, I do. I. I had heard from multiple sources that this particular person had not made any assertions that they were non-binary or anything prior to this court filing. So there really is the possibility that it's being done to kind of deflect from a possible hate crime motive. But Mm -hmm. that said, I think where the real story is is the fact that one Everyone lost interest in it the minute they found this out. Because mm-hmm. you look at, look at, it was nonstop wall to wall coverage of how this shooter was probably against, you know, trans rights or LGBTQ community. And that's why this was the target. You know, that's what the story was until the court filing came
2: out. And I, the yeah, I see appeared. what you mean. I'm- yeah, they, they so tend to the, lose interest when it, when it doesn't fit their narrative.
3: Right. So there's, that's one part. And then I, this is also on CNN. They had a trans um, commentator come on to talk about this. And the trans person said, <laughs> and I'm not even making this up, um, <laughs> I can tell just by looking at the mugshot that that's a man. They're not non-binary.
2: Oh, <laughs> and Talk I mean, let's not, pause.
3: <laughs> let's not pause and ask what people can tell just by looking at the trans commentator, <laughs> because hilarious. I'm sure we That's could right. make some observations of our own there, but you're not allowed <laughs> oh to God. do that. So, oh, man. yeah, so there was, that was now, also on CNN.
2: So. <laughs> now you you wrote too that uh, Joey Behar wanted to politicize this thing right away, right?:
3: Oh, sure. I mean, everybody did. everybody wanted it pol- political right away, because everybody wants everything political right away. I mean, unless you absolutely know who the shooter is and 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 it doesn't fit the narrative, then it's going to eat up the news cycle you know because it's it's going to be used to say okay well then then we should just get rid of the guns cuz i mean that's what joe biden did look at did you see his comment uh, he was talking about how he doesn't he doesn't understand how semi automatic uh weapons can still be sold in this why we still allow that like number 1 the second amendment actually mandates that you allow that <laughs> let's not go there <laughs> but then his his phrasing a semi automatic gun that's like every gun out there pretty much unless (laughs) you're unless you're talking about a bolt action you know a semi-autom all that means is it's one bullet comes out of the barrel per per time you squeeze the trigger that's all semi-automatic means well and And the the
2: other thing is you got you got joy behar connecting a christmas card that Lauren Boebert sends out a pro-Second Amendment Christmas card connected to this shooting, like this somehow incited this kook. If you saw him during his arraignment, holy cow, the guy, I don't know. He looked like he was on drugs. I don't know whether they'd sedated him. Somehow, I mean, people will go on the left will go to the most extreme lengths to try to connect this to their anti-gun fanaticism.
3: Yeah, well, you know, Lauren Boebert and her kids standing in front of the christmas tree holding rifles using perfect trigger discipline somehow that photo that circulated on twitter and is and has since been deleted that inspired this guy
2: (laughs) yes you you can't make this stuff up you know and i I, it's just it's to the point where i mean and they do Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's let's move on to Joe Biden. And I wanted to ask you about his uh, he was first for stopping the pause on student. Well, resuming student loan repayments before he was against Mm -hmm. them, of course, blaming the Republican lawsuit on that, uh, extending the public health emergency seemingly endlessly so that he can get away with all kinds of executive overreach. When's Mm -hmm. it going to end, Virginia? When somebody
3: makes it, I, I mean, he, he's going to—he's going to he's gonna have to be forced. It's just J.B. Pritzker just re- extended the emergency in Illinois. There's no emergency here, except for perhaps our uh, you know unfunded pension liability. But he's not fixing that. You know, the, what are they there, doing about that? No by the way, uh, nothing. No, nothing. Because if they do anything, what? then yeah.
2: Well, I've, I've talked to a guy, uh, who, who's, the, who's the guy, Stephen um, f- f- at, uh, at city journal has written extensively on this, um, forget the guy's sure. last name, but he's done a lot of work on this and, and Chicago in particular, but Illinois at large, they got involved with all these defined benefit, you know, retirement plans mm-hmm. for, you know, police and so forth. Totally unfunded. Unlike for instance, the teacher's, uh, retirement plan in Missouri, which right. is solid as a rock. Um, and it it mm-hmm. appears as though at some point i mean the uh, you know the 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 it's going to come around and taxpayers are going to have to pay the bill right i mean cuz these are promises made oh yeah and that's that's
3: kind of the point and that's why they have to keep doing things like raising property taxes and and uh raising business taxes and raising state tax i mean ev- everything everything is, but primarily through the property tax, especially in the Chicago area. I mean, the the property taxes on this side of the river, if you if you might if you were going to move to the area, for example, and get a job in downtown St. Louis, you'd start looking at houses and you'd think, oh, oh, well, real estate values. You know, you know, there's actually some some pretty decent real estate value in Illinois. You know, you look in the metro area and you find a house and. It might be $50,000 less than the same size house and property over in Missouri. Then you look at the property taxes and you realize, oh, well, that's where they're getting the money back. You know, because mm-hmm. the property taxes over here are so much higher, even in the metro area, and they are 10 times worse in Chicago. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, you you look at that and it's it's just because... You had the audacity to buy property in Illinois where they haven't bothered to figure out how to make their payments. So it's and, you know, Missouri has their own problems. I mean, personal property tax. Imagine explaining to the founders that so when you buy a thing, you pay taxes on it. They go, okay, yeah, that happens sometimes. Then you say, okay, but a year later, if you still own the thing, you pay taxes again. And then a year after that, if you still own the thing, you pay taxes. Wait, what? What is wrong with you people? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, it's never made sense. And I thought double taxation was something that we uh, abhorred. Well, I, I want to thank you for right. being with us and and express my gratitude and thanks for you uh, for all that you do, both here on News Talk STL and this program and the digital content and, of course, your daily wire contributions. And I uh, hope that you're getting a little R&R with your family this weekend. And um, as well, that your your sniffles and your... RSV or whatever cold you have goes away. Virginia, oh, thanks good. for being no, with No, <laughs> I I am
3: just allergic to everything that's outside, pretty ah. much.
2: <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> hey, well, have have a good rest of the weekend. Thank you.
3: Yeah, you too.
2: All right, Virginia Cruda. Uh, at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, that uh, extension of student loan benefits. Was there any discussion around your table? I'm going to want to know. 314-912-1019. Give me a call. Let's talk about it.